Where was that? Well, a friend of mine uh, who was a uh, technician on tape recorders um, told me that uh, Les Tremaine had dropped the machine off a week before to, to have it repaired. So uh, I called him, and it turned out he was the uh, secretary of the Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters, which is, of course, a very, very big group, and we'll talk about that maybe later. And uh, he invited me over, and uh, I got to meet him, and uh, that's kind of how the thing got started in the first place. But there's a little more to it than that. They, they have a group there from Chicago, all Chicago actors. Um, you'll hear four of them on this tape. There were several others that we didn't get to uh, bring in, Ed Prentice for one, Jonathan Hole, and several others. They have a little club. They meet every two weeks in a little restaurant right off Hollywood and Vine. And they invited me over, so we had a chat, and then I got four of them to come with me to back to the uh, their headquarters, and we made this tape, Dick. And um, can you tell us a, a bit about them, uh, who they are, and so on? Age of Radio has been brought to you by WTIC and Cromwell Savings Bank, located at Main and West Streets in Cromwell, a friendly bank in a friendly town. The Golden Age of Radio was produced by Bill Grasty and Dick Bertell. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is your host to welcome you in through the squeaking door to another... Ah, there's the Golden Age Radio with Dick Brito and Ed Corcoran there on Yesterday USA. Hope you enjoy that. We'll have another one next Saturday night for you, everybody. Well, now we're going to move over to the Red Skelton Show. And this will be sponsored by Ties. I think this is the 1950s. I think maybe December 24th. Here we go. Procter & Gamble's Tide is wonderful. Brings the housewife delight. So because they know how good it is, there'll be no commercials tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to say... <laughs> From Hollywood, Procter & Gamble's Tide, the wash day miracle that gives you a better washing job than any soap on earth, proudly presents the Red Skelton Show. again next Sunday for the Red Skelton Show. Red Skelton is heard in this program for the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. This is a copyrighted feature. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Ah, the Red Skelton Show. Great, great show. Well, we're going to play a show to shout out to my good friend Patricia. And we're going to play Third McGee and Molly. This is from December 19th, 1950, everybody. And Tim will join me in an hour or so, we'll press. And we'll talk about Campbell Playhouse. But we're going to play Third McGee and Molly next in the Great Girls Week show. Here we go. The Pet Milk Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The first evaporated milk, Pet Milk, presents Fibber McGee and Molly, transcribed with Bill Thompson, Gail Gordon, Arthur Q. Bryan, Dick Legrand, Cliff Arquette, Ed Begley, Jeanette Nolan, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The show is written by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie and directed by Max Hutto, with music by the Kingsman and Billy Mills Orchestra. 
Four years ago, in Baltimore, Maryland, four tiny babies were born to Mr. and Mrs. Charles Henn, Jr. You must have seen their pictures in the newspapers and magazines, remember? Delicate infants they were, weighing a mere three pounds each. But they didn't stay delicate. Soon after they were born, the babies were started on safe, easy-to-digest pet milk. They've had no other kind of milk, and you should see them now. Four years old and going strong. All happy, husky youngsters with the fine, straight backs, the strong, sturdy limbs, and sound teeth that are typical of pet milk babies. Ask your doctor about pet milk for your baby. And remember, pet evaporated milk isn't just a baby food, it's an all-family food, an all-purpose milk. The first food for millions of babies, the first choice of millions of good cooks. Get pet milk at your grocer's tomorrow. The Wistful Vista Post Office, loaded down with Christmas mail, has signed up some extra men with cars this morning to deliver packages. And standing in line awaiting final instructions, we find a man who is alert and eager. <laughs> a man who is ambitious and hardworking. <laughs> and right between them, a man who is Mr. McGee of Fibber McGee and Molly. outside the railing there now, Molly. This is for employees only. I still can't see why I can't stand in there with you. My goodness, I'm not going to bother. It's the regulations. Postal rules. Here comes the postmaster. All right, but my goodness. All right, ma'am. Attention, please. Hmm. Everybody set? Number seven here? Yeah. Number 12? Yeah. Number 14? 14. Where's the extra man for route 14? That's you, McGee. You're number 14. <laughs> oh, oh. Great show. December 19th, 1950. Fred McGee and Molly. Now we're going to move over to the Great Grocery Show. This is Christmas Eve, 1952. After that, we'll go with Amos and Annie, and then we'll have Tim on. So here we go, everybody. December 24th, 1952. Transcribed. The Kraft Foods Company presents Willard Waterman as the Great Gildersleeve. <laughs> Just about this time each week, we usually bring you some hints and ideas about using some of those fine craft foods. But we just don't have time to do that tonight because Christmas is in the air. And the craft choristers are waiting with a traditional carol.
Great Gildersleeve was presented tonight transcribed. Tonight, play You Bet Your Life on NBC. Merry Christmas, everybody. December 24th, 1952, it's the Great Gildersleeve Show. Now we're going to stick in uh, Amos and show before I t- call Tim here around 10 o'clock. This is from New Year's Eve, 1941, so it's been uh, 17 days after uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. Very famous Amos and Annie Christmas show. So we'll get back to December 24th, 1941. Campbell Soup bring you Amos and Andy. and Andy received many Christmas greetings. Both boys are extremely happy and are looking forward to Christmas Day. Tomorrow is Christmas, the day of all days when old friendships and family ties are renewed and strengthened. This year, more than ever, the real fundamental things in our life stand out from the trivial and inconsequential. The Christmas service at church has more meaning. The old words, freedom, equality, tolerance, character, take on new values, and most of all, we realize the importance in our lives of the people we like most. Some of us, just as some of you, are fortunate to have our families with us this Christmas. Some of us, just as some of you, have folks in army camps, on ships, or on foreign shores. But this Christmas, there is a greater appreciation of family ties, of friends, than in the past 24 years. We think of you as friends of ours. 
and as such, Amos and Andy and I, and the makers of Campbell's Soup, wish you, with special warmth and meaning, a Merry Christmas. Turn to you tomorrow at this same hour. This is Bill Hay speaking for Campbell's Soup, bidding you all good night. And inviting you to stay tuned in for Lanny Roth, who follows immediately on this station. Christmas Eve, 1941, and hello, Tim Knopfler. Hey, Walden, how are you tonight? We're doing fine. How are you doing? doing very good. Good. Merry Christmas to you and your family from here. So Merry Christmas to you and all your listeners. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tim and I are going to talk about a wonderful program, but I got a little bit of a teaser. We're going to be playing this Christmas Eve uh, next next Wednesday. And when Tim's on uh, late that night after Patricia, we're going to play the other famous Campbell Playhouse. But here's a little intro how uh, the week before Orson Welles introduced that. Here we go. And now, as to next Sunday night. Next Sunday night, ladies and gentlemen, is Christmas Eve. to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her first son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord appeared before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a maze.
Since the days of Caesar Augustus, all people have celebrated by joy the great joy which will be to all people. For unto us was born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And on this day, at least in the calendar of our year, we affirm the glory of our God by the laughter of our children. Every nation, according to its character and its taste, by some gift of gaiety has enriched the tradition of this, our solemnest festival. And because America is what it is, we are the fortunate heirs of the accumulated customs of almost 2,000 years of keeping Christmas. The best songs that have been sung are sung by us. The best games that have been played, we play, and the best stories ever told are ours to tell. For storytelling has persisted as a Christmas ritual in spite of the printing press. A ceremony as hilarious and as serious as hanging the stocking, dressing the tree, and kissing under the mistletoe. And because Christmas is first of all for children, Christmas stories are fairy stories first of all. It's mildly surprising that the best of them all, which we're telling again, Putin, for you next week, is for everybody and turns out to be a ghost story. I've endeavored, writes its author on its title page, I have endeavored in this ghostly little story to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their hours and houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. It is signed, your faithful friend and servant, Charles Dickens. And Charles Dickens, as everybody but our newest friends will know, is the author of next week's story. And our star, as all our old friends will know too, is that best loved of American actors and the special favorite of all of us on the Campbell Playhouse, Mr. Lionel Barrymore, who will be keeping an engagement with us on that night that he has kept for a number of years. An engagement to play Scrooge in that most human and heartwarming of Christmas stories, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. This will be the fifth Christmas that Campbells have chosen this good old tale as their Christmas present to their friends. But I think that this year, perhaps, more than ever, it becomes clear how direct and how all-important is the message that Charles Dickens gave the world in that little story. Wherever, anywhere in the world, people pause next Sunday night to listen to Lionel Barrymore and A Christmas Carol, there will be people a little kinder, a little happier, a little more at peace with themselves and their neighbors. And so until then, until a Christmas carol with Lionel Barrymore, my sponsors, the makers of Campbell Soups, and all of us here in the Campbell Playhouse remain, as always, obediently yours. I'll tell you one thing that Orson Welles knew how to do was to set thing, something up. Yeah, he could um, build anticipation. He knew how many beats to give it <clears throat> where people were really listening intently. Yeah. He used silence to um, make people listen. And uh, I think when you're that gifted, you have
confidence that the time that you're taking is everything that you need. Some actors are just too insecure to let that much time go. Now, he had the music in the background to fill the air, which was a device, but um, his skill is just uh, without equal. Well, it tells you that he put a lot of value on music, too. I mean... Hit Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, Bernard Herrmann, my, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> uh, the man's work is still uh, being studied. It, mm-hmm. it, um, we won't get into a thing on Bernard Herrmann tonight, but um, uh, obviously he put uh, emphasis on music. He had one of the most talented uh, composers uh, ever. And um, the man who could translate film into an, an audible mass that would move you as much as the imagery. And, and uh, so that actually gave uh, Orson Welles a lot of, a great swimming pool to splash around in when it came <laughs> to what he was doing. Well, you know, as you being an audio producer, you, I mean, you underscore a lot of your things with or get the right emphasis in music. So you sort of appreciate it with your producer hat, how that's all done. I've also been a soundtrack collector for, oh my gosh, um, for about 30, <clears throat> oh my, really, 38 years? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't think it was that long. Um, but no, since, um, for 38 years, I've collected soundtracks, and and, uh, and you get to learn from a layman's perspective. I don't know music from someone who knows how to you know, sight read or, or compose. That's Those are skills and gifts I don't have, but from a, from a listener's point of view, that the music is, it translates elements that neither film or radio will ever give you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the radio insofar as the dramatic performances, but the music will always provide things that nothing else can give you. And it's, oh, it's usually it's the emotional content. Some of it can be uh, shadowed by uh, an actor performing in a certain manner, but sustain a mood of, or, or, or build anticipation or get people on the edge of the seats, it's going to be the music. And you would have to cross several galaxies to find someone, even in, even in the marginal range of uh, Bernard Herrmann. He was just an amazing, amazingly talented man. Well, if you think about what they were doing in the Mercury Theater and the Campbell Playhouse a lot of time, was adapting other people's works. And to me, that's not necessarily an easy job to do. You, boy, did you hit that on the head. Yeah. Um, adapting other people's works. I, as you know, and not to be too mysterious about it, um, I'm currently involved in negotiations with a, uh, a company that has the rights to much sought after uh, radio play scripts. And one of the things that is most daunting about really taking a, a whack at that kind of task is trying to get in the head of the writer. When I'm producing something I've written, I have complete and intimate familiarity with every n- nuance you know, known and, and considered. But to work from the other side and try to get behind the, the writer and really believe, believe you're, you're hearing what he's communicating to you um, is a lot of effort, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience because there's so many layers to good writing that you'll never get it on the first pass. Yeah, and, and here they did it within a week. Well, 
listening to Orson Welles just now, one of the things that occurred to me is how closely some of his phrasing and some of his intonations sounded like Paul Fries. Mm -hmm. And we all know that Welles' career began before Fries. Right. I don't think Paul Fries was ever trying to emulate Orson Welles, but there's a there's some tonal qualities, their deliveries that make them just you know rapture to listen to. And when I'm listening to Wells set things up, when I'm listening to him set the stage and get me interested and move me along and, and build the picture, I mean, that's what a craftsman is. He he knows how to lay down each board where each nail goes, and he does it in, in a purposeful and deliberate manner because he has a specific place he wants to take you to. And it worked when Wells was done talking. There was no way I was going to miss that show next week. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. Well, it tells you how talented he really was. He was successful in three major uh, formats. You think the theater, radio, and film. And the one area that translates all of them is as a writer. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, as you know, Wells would often go into the script and go, all right, let's see what we can do here. And he started putting his own touches on it, and it would it would rise from the above average to meteoric. It was just it would just take off, and um, you can't produce as many things as he's done, act in as many, work with a level of. I mean, I mean, we could spend an hour talking about the cast of the Mercury Theater Camel's Playhouse and Citizen Kane and just the people he he was elbow to elbow with Joseph Cotton. El, el, all the time. I mean, when you work with that sort of material, uh, I mean, there's a certain expectation that comes with it, but the man delivered every single week. He never he never missed. I can't think of a single show he ever produced that was considered, you know, the flop show. Mm -hmm. uh, never. Wells is always above the mark. Wow. Well, we're going to be playing the Christmas Kill when Tim comes on with me Christmas Eve night, and I definitely, uh, uh, if you go back to radio history, everybody, it started even into the 20s. Uh, different local radio station had a piece of it. I think I've seen documentation at least go back to 24. And I know the earliest recordings we have, I think it must be from the BBC from 31. Of the Christmas Carol? Yeah. And then uh, Campbell Playhouse uh, had a radio series, made Tim look this one up, called uh, Hollywood Hotel. And Hollywood Hotel was really the very first big-time uh, radio show that came from Hollywood that put Hollywood on the map. Because uh, before then, it was hard to go coast-to-coast coast because of the, uh, the telephone lines. But um, Hollywood Hotel established the trend of doing that, you know, having a major West Coast show go all the way back east. Uh, Lowell Parson, Dick Powell, et cetera, et cetera. And in 34, Christmas time, Cam Campbell's uh, Playhouse with the sponsor, they decided to uh, have the Christmas kill. That's when they hired Lionel Barrymore to uh, start it all off for them. Right. They, they, were, um, they were out there. They were taking chances. Radio was brand new, and mm -hmm. they, they were smart. They got their hands on it. And then uh, Lionel got sick, so his brother John filled in, at least for one, maybe two years, 
And then, uh... Was that about the time that he lost the ability to walk? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, they came out, of course, with the Chris McCarroll movie in around 38 or so. I think that was an MGM product, if I recall. Uh, well, I know what's not in that, but it sort of helped prestige, you know, pretty good stature for the property, at least. Yeah. And then Campbell took over Mercury in 38, and uh, I've listened to the uh, Orson version of 38, but the 39 one is sort of the classic production. And uh, Big difference between the 38 and 39 one. Yeah, well... You don't have Lionel Barrymore there, and it, and you don't have the full range of music there, and I think the adaptation was was stronger. So, three or four different elements involved. <clears throat> so, sort of sounds like uh, Wells knew that um, Lionel was coming back mm-hmm. and wanted to uh, welcome him back with a very strong production. Yeah. It's funny in um, uh, Lionel losing the ability to walk or, or making it quite difficult. I don't know if he could, was completely paralyzed, but he was walking was something he needed to stay away from. Um, and I'm sure there, your listeners know more about that particular aspect than I do. But uh, it, I mean, it just didn't keep him from getting roles. No. Um, one of my favorite films, uh, Closet Little Sleeper, called On Borrowed Time. Oh, that is a classic. Well, here's the thing. That Grandpa has to get up and walk mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> which Lionel couldn't do. So they had, they arranged something where the, where he could sort of rock from side to side and the background would move, um, to give the appearance of walking. And on distance shots, they had to stand in, uh, do the actual, uh, feet on the ground stuff. But, I mean, Lionel Barrymore coming in and doing the, the radio show for him that must have been a treat there was no uh, physicality to it uh, you know beyond what he was doing in his performance and and everyone could see him you know moving around and doing the things that Ebenezer Scrooge was supposed to do because of the level of performance that he gave and that's probably why he had his own radio shows a couple of years later married the town for about seven years he probably loved doing radio it was it probably was a snap for him well I, certainly it was a way for him to do his craft and not have to suffer the physical challenges that are so inherent in every film production and uh, uh, I'm sure Mayor of the Town was uh, was a great deal of fun for him you said it was on for seven years yeah yeah somebody was enjoying something yeah no doubt about it well the the Campbell's Playhouse they came in how many episodes after it was like December 9th, wasn't it? Right. The first, uh, they took over the, uh, they let go of the uh, Hollywood Hotel property and picked up Mercury Theater. So they, December 9th of 38. So. And, and, and I know you know this, but let's share it anyways. <laughs> uh, what, what, uh, what title was it that was also a Hitchcock film? Jane Eyre's, of course, was done in 38, December um, 9th. Hang on, well, maybe you reckon. No, no, you're right. Rebecca. 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 I, always, I was just thinking maybe your records are different. Yeah, no, you're right. Because I always mix up the title, even though a little bit different. Um, Rebecca, and then uh, Chris McHale was, you know, that, that was the John, two weeks later. John Barrymore in 38, right? Uh, no, Orson did it by himself. Oh. Because uh, he, he took it back, and uh, cause I think John did it in 36 and 37. Uh, Orson took it back, and uh, Orson did it himself in 38. Uh, you know, play the narrator and Ebenezer Scrooge. 
Right. And then uh, in 39, he just took the narration part. But just running back a little bit, mm -hmm. look at Campbell's Playhouse, because that's uh, that's really the era we're talking about. Right. They had Rebecca and uh, December of 38. Right. Then they went right to Christmas carols. Two weeks later, yeah. Right. They, I, then on January 6th, they did the Counselor at Law. Yeah. Uh, and then jumped up to Mutiny on the Bounty. Right. Uh, I lost my girlish laughter. Mm -hmm. Was I've never heard of that one. <laughs> um, I mean, I've never heard the show. Right. Uh, that was the following week. Uh, Aerosmith, The Green Goddess, The Glass Key, and Bo Jess. So, I mean, I'm not quite a... have a... I've listened to a lot of those, you know. Um, you were taking chances. Some were classic, some were... Uh... That's exactly what I was going to say. I, I recognize some of the titles. Mm -hmm. Some of them are, are unknown to me, and right. certainly he was taking chances. Yeah. But Campbell's just trusted wealth to pull it off. Right. Um, what, how, what a treat it would have been to sit around the radio and listen to that live. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine just being in the rehearsal studio, just watching that being put together? Uh, it, you know what? Um, it, it, should the ability to travel in time present itself, that is certainly going to be one of my destinations. Mm -hmm. I would love to sit there and watch them put together, oh, I mean, any number of shows, certainly, sorry, wrong number, mm -hmm. um, with Agnes Moorhead. Um, but the uh, the production and watching them put it together would have really been interesting because all we see is the polished product. Right. And to have them go through the pacing, and from a producer's point of view, from a sound designer's point of view, watching them make the decisions and how they, I mean, come on, they didn't have digital technology. They had, you know, lawnmowers and microphones mm -hmm. when they needed to do something. So uh, given the, the very base level that the audio craft was at, that didn't stop them from tackling some amazingly complicated things. Well, and it tells you, too, Tim, they didn't have a lot of time, and we consider it, almost 70 years as a classic. Right. Even with what we have today, yeah. the quality of their production can be imitated. I don't know that it can be duplicated because people are trying... They weren't trying to imitate anybody no. when they did what they did. They just put on the best darn show mm -hmm. they could muster. And, you know, people have tried to imitate it, but it's never... I don't think it's ever been equal to this. I, to my best of my knowledge, it's Past. No, no, they, uh, there was different versions of Christmas Carol, uh, they cut it down, um, Lionel Billmore did a lot of a half hour and they just was lacking, because it's almost a one hour production, if you think about it. It, it, the different, uh, the three different ghosts, the, uh, how they set up the, uh, the scene. And then there's always the, the reverie at the end, mm -hmm. with when Scrooge becomes a new man. Right. That's the payoff, that's the point of, that's the redemption of the, of the soul. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the story of the prodigal son that's come back to God mm -hmm. and will do his work and put God at the center of his life and not himself, or more importantly, and not money at the center of his life. Right. And the great moral tale of what happens when you make your investments in earthly things and forget the things that are of God yeah. um, uh, you know, rings through in every single page. And Great moral, as you, as you were analyzing, you think that's probably why Dickens' works live today. When he wrote the, when he wrote both of them, Tales of Two Cities, uh, Christmas Carol, 
all, you know, great, like, tale, great Tale of Two Cities, the Great Sacrifice. You know, uh, this one, as you mentioned, the, the redemption of man. Well, I guess the, the way I see it, and I'm certain that your listeners will have other points of view, but the way I see it is that, that as long as anything but God is the center of your life, uh, you have only but darkness and despair mm-hmm. to count on. Amen. And uh, how it, it can be looked at as a cute children's fable or, or a fairy tale or whatever, and that's, you know, for some people that's the best they can do with the information, that their hearts are not there. Yeah. But uh, how can you not see and understand the joy? Um, I mean, I put it to the listeners, was Scrooge happier when he was hoarding the money or when he was giving it away? That's true. Well, if you think about it, there was some, oh, if you listen to the show, they had a reference when he was a young man and how happy he was. So, That's right. You know. And, the, and money wasn't the center of his no, then. No, no. And, uh, you know, there's a number of, I mean, Christmas Carol has to be the most redone show, redone story of all time. I mean, how many how many different actors have played the role, and how many Bob Cratchits have been, and just it's I mean it's been you know Rich Little did one years ago where he played all the characters, but as uh, different Hollywood stars. Um, if I, if I, if I, that would be uh, fun to listen to. Uh, I haven't seen. I saw the show on TV once. Wow. Well, I mean that pop is still being used today in local theater. You know what? I'll, I'll, certainly, and. I know the South Coast Repertory here in right. Orange County, California, does a very respectable production of it. Yeah, it, it's, I have been there. It, it's a it's a good production. He always uh, it's quality. Yeah, it, it's uh, the timing, the pacing, the the, the casting. Uh, I you know having never seen any of the plays in England as my my wife has. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have quite the base of reference that she does, um, but I know a good show when I see it. And and they they for someone to do the show correctly, they have to understand the concept that you and I were talking about. And that is the spark of what the story is, what the what the fire is lit from. What is the spark? What is the impetus for the thought, the motivation for putting it together? And at the end of the day, it's it's man's inhumanity, man, and it's man's ability to stop that and and to emulate uh, the gifts. Um, that God has given us, and the love, unqualified, un, un, uh, unmeasured love that he has given us, mm-hmm. because uh, we're told that God loves a hilarious giver. He loves someone yep. who gives, who is so happy to give that you couldn't stop him from giving. He loves a cheerful giver. That's right. Yep. And um, someone also said that you, you can't be generous unless you're happy. Right. And... Who better than Ebenezer Scrooge mm-hmm. at the end of the play to model all of those mm-hmm. uh, qualities and, and uh, behaviors? Wow. So that's what we got to fo- look forward to. So uh, sometime uh, next Christmas Eve night after uh, we get with Patricia and we'll play a Fairy McGee and Molly, so I'll give you a call. All right. And we'll talk about it a little more in depth and I'll feature that great one-hour production. Right, well, I'll be doing some consistent listening to the show before we put it on. Good. Because it's just so darn good that once a year isn't enough. I agree. I, 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 you could be, uh, 
where Tim and I live here in Southern California, um, I was blessed every, uh, for many, many years, a uh, local San Diego station, KOGO, Christmas Eve would play at least six hours of old-time radio. And they always played the Christmas show at six o'clock at night. So before I even had a tape recorder, it was how I was introduced to the show back in the mid-70s. So, and for many, many years, it was on, you know, coast-to-coast radio. Different, the radio station picked it up. It was quite a production. Well, at some point in the future, mm-hmm. um, there will be another attempt at redoing the show. Yeah. And the most that any producer, director, or actor can do is to get within throwing distance of what was done on Christmas Eve, 1939. Absolutely. Don't even bother <laughs> trying to leap Mount Kilimanjaro in yeah. a single leap. You're not going to do it. That's true. But if you can get into its shadow, you've uh, you've accomplished something. And uh, uh, it'll be great to make it a part of uh, many people's Christmas Eve in just a few days. You bet. Walden, uh, real pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to speaking with you again on Christmas Eve. Sounds good, Tim. Thanks for everything. All right, you bet. All right. Thank you. Bye. There you go. And there's my buddy Tim. And now we're going to go ahead into the Phil Harris Hour Space Show, December 18th. 1949. Good health to all from Rexall. It's the Phil Harris Alice Bay Show, presented by the makers of Rexall drug products and 10,000 independent Rexall family druggists. Good evening. This is your Rexall family druggist with a welcome from all 10,000 of us. The 10,000 independent druggists who have chosen to make the word Rexall part of our own store name. We tell you this by the orange and blue Rexall sign on our windows. And we place that famous symbol there because we carry the 2,000 or more drug products made with the Rexall Drug Company. Like Bismarex, for example, this soothing antacid is one of Rexall's most famous products, and for good reason. In Bismarex, scientifically balanced ingredients work in a continuous relay to bring you prompt and prolonged relief from acid indigestion. Yes, Bismarex is just one more outstanding example of why we family druggists tell you you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. Rexall Family Druggist brings you the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Ann Whitfield, Walter Sharp and his music, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. Some time ago, Phil was shown a blue mink coat, which was suggested as a Christmas present for Alice. After two weeks of indecision, he has finally decided to buy it, and he has brought Frankie down to the fur shop for his expert opinion. Mr. Harris, will you please make up your mind? You've had this young lady modeling the fur coat for an hour now. She's getting tired of walking back and forth in front of you. Well, I like the coat, but I've saved my money a long time to get a coat as good as this and... and well, I'm not going to buy it until Mr. Remley makes a decision. <laughs> what do you say, Frankie? Keep her walking. 
haven't made up my mind yet. But Frankie, the girl's getting exhausted. Don't be so thoughtless. Okay, she can rest a while. <laughs> Come here, honey, sit on my lap. <laughs> now look, baby, I'm gonna give you one more chance. Are you still busy tonight? Ramley, stop leering at her. <laughs> now let's get back to your decision on the mink coat. All I want is your answer. You ain't getting no answer from me till I get an answer from her. <laughs> For the last time, honey, you're going to go out with me tonight, or aren't you? No. Get up and keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Harris, about the coat. Remley, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. <coughs> Trying to date a strange girl just because she has a pretty face and a smaltzy figure. <laughs> How a man. American homemakers agreed that one of the most important items in the family medicine cabinet is a reliable all-around mouthwash and gargle. No wonder, then, that millions of American mothers choose Rexall's MI-31 to fill that need. Used full strength, Rexall MI-31 kills contacted germs in a matter of seconds. And remember, Rexall gives you a full pint of MI-31 at the same price you pay for smaller quantities of other leading brands. Ask for it wherever you see the orange and blue Rexall sign on the window. And remember, you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Stay tuned for Sam Spade, then three great stars on Theater Guild on NBC. Give you one date on that one. That was December 11th, 1949. Phil Harris Out of Face Show. So we're going to play the following week. It's, and that should be December 18th, 1949. And then we're going to move over to a Red Skelton show. Another one in 46. We play 50. Then we're going to get into the couple's next door. A lot of those tonight. And so here's one more Phil Harris Out of Face, everybody. Here on Yesterday USA. And tomorrow night will be reps, and we're going to do It's a Wonderful Life, the uh, live stage production that we've recorded uh, February 207. So, good be- health to all from Rexall. Yeah, uh, well, for those who recorded me, rewind, and here we go. Good health to all from Rexall. It's the Bill Harris Alice Faye Show, presented transcribed by the makers of Rexall drug products and 10,000 independent Rexall family druggists. Good evening. This week, we...